idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not condemn us, commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged, if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols? And so, by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. The word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. All right, well, good morning, beloved. Please, if you have not done so already, uh, turn to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 8. We'll be starting in verse 1. As you do that, uh, please bow with me as we pray. Father, we ask that you would enlighten your word this morning to us. Lord, that this would be good food, uh, good things to, to consider, uh, lovely things to ponder. But above all, Lord, that this would build us up as a church. Show us Christ here in Paul's words. Show us Christ uh, not just here, Lord, but also uh, throughout the whole message. And may we love you more because of it. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. So what is there to say about the Corinthian church that has not already been drawn out by my brothers these past few weeks? Remember that they are notably divided, partitioned by strict legalists in one corner, permissive libertines in the other, disintegrating as factions vie for control over Christ's sheepfold and have acted in such a way as to cause some of us to blush at the thought of calling them Christian. Before we are too quick to write them off, we must remember that we also mirror their actions, that we are often also divided, selfishly ambitious and promiscuous, and that we also do not always appear to be servants of the God that we profess. Nevertheless, Christians we are, and Christians of the Corinthian church, they are also Christian although we certainly have and still are missing the mark in our lives. And so we are Christians, 
And because we are Christians, we are not left to our own devices. Correction will come just as a loving father corrects the son whom he loves. And so we have seen Paul, as an archetypal concerned father would, attempt to guide the rebellious children of Corinth back to the right path, advocating for brotherly love to overtake their divisions and for the supremacy of Christ to reign in all avenues and side streets of the city of mundane life, either in questions about conflicts between the brethren or regarding our relationship to authority, uh, or as Pastor Kevin and Zach uh, exposited for us from chapter 7 from these past two weeks, the single-minded devotedness to Christ we are to exhibit in our relationships, either marital or otherwise. The apostle has been immensely practical and pastoral within all of these matters. And this morning we shall see again that he continues to be so, even when we as modern people uh, may not see the immediate benefit of his teachings. And so let us quickly consider the difficulty of our approach to chapter 8 uh, before unveiling uh, the truth uh, that is found within. Chapter 8, and as we shall see, the subsequent chapters 9 and 10 all concern themselves with another specific situation the Corinthians seem to have become divided over. Okay, we've seen many of them at this point. We have another one this morning. Namely, that there is a group of Christians in Corinth who eat food offered to idols. It's very scandalous. This is immediately a passage that many of us might be tempted to skim over uh, whenever we comb through Paul's letter. And it is because this practice of offering food up to pagan gods has largely, in our modern Western context, to my knowledge at least, uh, you might go to a McDonald's and maybe they're doing like some seances in the back, I don't know. Uh, but um, mostly we would say that it's passed away in, in the West. Uh, but I have a few questions to illuminate uh, why this text actually holds a key heart posture we are to take as disciples of Jesus and as lovers of his bride, the church, regarding things seemingly unimportant. In this case, for us, food offered to idols. But here are some other examples that are more modern. What time exactly should our Sunday morning service be? Should we have a Sunday evening service? What kind of music should we listen to? Can we appreciate the work of various genres and artists? Or are we, as good Christians, supposed to only listen to southern gospel music? What type of clothing should we wear in public? Are we to get dressed to the nines to go to Publix? Or will joggers and a t-shirt suffice? And these are, of course, superfluous and kind of silly questions, but there's more important ones as well. Uh, if, God forbid, there was another outbreak of some virus, should Christians wear masks if a mandate was passed by the government? October 31st looms. Should Christians dress up as their favorite Power Ranger or Princess or 1970s hit detective show uh, character on Halloween? Can Christians consume alcohol? These are the types that bring the temperature and tension in the room uh, to potential boiling points. Even now, I'm sure, just by asking the question, there was some uh, awkward shifting. Especially, it seems, amongst Christians. And although they are not completely synonymous, those emotions that are, are uh, sort of fueling that discomfort are the exact emotions uh, that we see here in the text this morning. Namely, passion and pride, feelings of superiority and defiance, all find their root no matter the justification in what we know is right 
and what we know is wrong. And like a horrible blade, we swing our knowledge of things to and fro, eager and willing to correct and shame those who are too stupid or foolish to think otherwise. And this is what Paul denounces and directs our attention to here this morning in chapter 8. This seemingly archaic debate about food offered to idols actually has much for us to feast upon, especially as individualistic and self-reliant Americans in the 21st century. We think we know everything. Indeed, our principal question that overshadows this text this morning is such. What is true knowledge and what is its end? What is true knowledge and what is its end? And so to answer this question, we shall consider Paul's argument in Corinthians 8 in its three component parts. Firstly, that which is vain knowledge in verses 1 through 3. Secondly, right knowledge, which is verses 4 through 6. And lastly, loving knowledge, which is in verses 7 through 12. So vain knowledge, right knowledge, and, and loving knowledge. Number one, vain knowledge. Starting in verse 1. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something he does not yet know as he ought to know, but if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Paul here introduces us to that claim I mentioned earlier that the uh, one group within Corinth had it posited to him in their own letter. Okay, we've seen this already in a few other chapters uh, where he quotes someone, uh, specifically th these are the Corinthians he is quoting. It seems as if this group specifically, of which hereafter, just for simplicity's sake, I'm going to call the permissive party. Uh, because, I don't know, I liked it, uh, was made up of Christians who were trained in the fundamentals of the faith and have strengthened themselves in it. In other words, they hold fast to the truth of the gospel and were not young in the faith. Okay, These are not uh, uh, newly converts. These are people who have deep knowledge uh, and seem to, to know what they're speaking of. They're, they have authority. They have some form of, of knowledge of the scriptures. But uh, the purpose is they are using this advanced knowledge they have as justifications for why they should be permitted to continue partaking in a specific social custom within Corinth, uh, even if those customs are, are threatening to harm those within the body. And this will have dire consequences, we shall see later. Uh, but in first century Roman Corinth, uh, it was one, the society was one that was deeply religious. Uh, worship of gods and idols were of a daily occurrence in all aspects of social life felt um, those idols' metaphorical hands. Okay, you can't really outrun it. Uh, we can talk about perhaps how our modern idols do the same thing, but that's another story for another time. But specifically, it was common for citizens of Corinth to be invited to sacred uh, uh, banquets to feast and discuss uh, social, political, relational life, just you know, normal things you might do at a cafe nowadays. Uh, they did uh, around tables in, in pagan temples. These feasts were held in the honor of the gods, and that included the food that was consumed, just as we, before we might eat a meal, might pray and ask God to bless the food. The same thing happened for, for them and their pagan gods. And so, uh, to abstain from those feasts, because they were so uh, um, popular in society, uh, would be tantamount to societal suicide. 
It would be as if you swore off entering a cafe or a restaurant uh, ever again. Uh, you might survive socially, right? You, uh, but you would effectively be a re- recluse. It would be quite difficult to gain formal relationships with others otherwise, right? You can't be like, hey, let's go to the, like Cavaliers later and uh, talk about life. You can't do that because uh, there's statues of Jupiter and, and other gods like everywhere, and you're like, okay, I'm a little uncomfortable now. So it's like it's, it's essentially cutting off all, uh, um, shall we say, extracurricular uh, places you might be able to get to know people. And so, uh, the permissive party, these, these people with much knowledge, uh, held up their knowledge of the gospel as the reason for their continuance of partaking in those social customs within the temple. Okay? After all, as you say, all of us possess knowledge. All of us understand what the gospel means, what it means for our daily life, that we can do these things and not worry about, uh, you know, of falling into sin uh, before pagans or uh, their idols. And then even though they are uh, professing that, oh yeah, all of us know this, Paul, the whole church, we, we got this down pat. Uh, Paul is not convinced in the slightest of this. Uh, quickly, the apostle places his finger on the pulse of the party, of that specific party's heart, affirming one notion and denying another. Okay. He affirms, he does not deny that the Corinthians do indeed have knowledge. Okay, they certainly have knowledge. They know things. That's great. Uh, and as we shall see in verses 4 through 6, however, uh, we would even say that they have better knowledge than perhaps some of us do about who God is. This is not, uh, you know, these are not, again, uh, young, newly converted people. Uh, but what Paul does deny is the effect of that knowledge that they hold, what that knowledge actually does. This knowledge they profess does nothing but puff up the person, uh, like a balloon that is filled with oxygen for a time, but soon shall it quickly deflate and leave nothing but emptiness and a floppy little you know, balloon that is kind of uh, pointless and useless at that point. They're puffed up uh, specifically in pride, and as we know from the book of Proverbs, Pride goes before destruction. And if this language was not poignant enough that Paul is using, he draws out the vanity of their knowledge even further by retorting if anyone imagines that he knows something. He does not yet know as he ought to know. The Corinthians here imagine that they're holding to something steadfast, something uh, very, very, a very good foundation for their argument. But because what they hold to is, in reality, their own hubris and pride, they grasp at nothing but empty air, a vapor, or as our point says, vanity. And I would be remiss uh, here to not uh, to not point out that what Paul is what Paul is not decrying here is not knowledge in and of itself. Right? He's not saying education and learning is evil, or that knowledge itself puffs up a man. Uh, no, because if that was the case, uh, bye, you can leave, and we can go home, and you can not read or watch a show or do anything at all. You can just sleep in your bed all day. Uh, because everything you do, something of the matter of knowledge is given to you. You gain a knowledge from things you do. And if knowledge itself is what always puffs up the person, uh, again, then we just need to, you need to flee from it from everywhere. And so that's not what Paul is saying. Paul's not saying knowledge of itself is bad and you should throw it away. Uh, I would pray you would see the insanity of that. 
but it is not the intelligence itself that is on the trial here. Uh, it, it is specifically the motives of the human heart. That's what, it's, it's not just about you know, food and idols and things like that. It's about the motive of the heart. That's, that's the, the, the underlying issue at, at, at the base here that we're trying to look at. If you hold fast to your knowledge because it gives you some form of superiority or, or comfort in the fact that you know things or justifies your conscience uh, for your actions because you know what's right, um, the point here is you need to, to essentially be very careful. Because if it is actually pride that you are, are basing your knowledge upon, it will destroy you. And it will not only destroy you, it will destroy others alongside you. I know this temptation very well. But Paul gives us the better path, a more wholesome uh, way to ground ourselves. Specifically, he says in verse one, uh, verses 1 into 2 that love builds up. That if anyone loves God, he is known by God. So as a contrast to that, to that vain knowledge that's based in pride and based on what, you know, all the things we know, instead he contrasts that with love. He says, whereas uh, uh, knowledge uh, puffs up, love builds up. It's something strong. It's it's an actual foundation, not uh, a vapor, not not, um, empty air. And so this here is the true application of knowledge of which we're going to be seeing throughout this entire sermon. Namely, the love of God in our neighbors. That is the, the true application of what our knowledge is meant for and what it's supposed to be fueling is the love of God in the love of our neighbors. Here and only here we can say that we not only hold fast to knowledge, but that we may sing and rejoice and, and be actually joyful. Uh, with this knowledge that we have, rather than just being um, cooped up in our houses all day, sort of uh, fuming and, and all those things. We know uh, because the love of the Lord is that which builds up and not this knowledge of, of, of vanity, then that's a good foundation to work with. This is the seasoning to our knowledge that the permissive party in Corinth and indeed, many of us here this morning uh, seem to forget. And because we forget this seasoning, uh, any knowledge we think we know is tasteless. It has no use. It is like the salt that's going to be spat out because it, is, it, it, it simply has no purpose. It is nothing. As Paul says further along in this same letter, if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries, and have all knowledge, and if I have all faith, so as to remove mountains, but I have not love, I am nothing. True knowledge, that which actually matters eternally, leads us into the arms of God, our Father, and His Son, Jesus Christ. That's what actually builds up. And so let us depart from this vain knowledge and consider that which is right knowledge in verses 4-6. through six. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence, and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, 
through whom are all things, and through whom we exist. Here, Paul is, is speaking much more plainly, much more explicitly regarding this knowledge that the Corinthians are holding such value in. Let's chew upon it a little bit and, and see whether it's holding any water or not. Right? I'm going to place my logic teacher hat on, uh, which is my day job. Simply stated, they argue, one, premise one, that we know that idols do not really exist and that God is the only true God. Premise two, since idols do not exist, the, the food in these banquets are not offered up to anything. Conclusion, therefore, since idols do not really exist, there is no issue with us feasting in the pagan temples on food offered up to nothing. Sounds pretty sound. It's not a bad argument. Because idols are truly nothing, more than pieces of timber or metal or stone in the physical sense, right? We think of these, uh, you know, these little statues whenever you hear the word idol. Um, you, know, you might have seen like little Buddha statues or something. Um, and that's, that's, that is certainly true idols in one sense. Uh, but another uh, a more um, nuanced, more difficult idol to grasp is that which is spiritual in nature, right? Those religious facades that we hold to as, as people, the things that are creating in our heart, right? Money or, or the affection of another or fill in the blank. Those are all idols. And they are not, um, they're, they're not real. Of course, there are principalities and evil spirits within the world where, you know, Paul is not denying this. Uh, but the so-called gods of the Greco-Roman world and also of, of today were nothing but imaginary beings constructed in the idolatrous hearts of man. Okay, There is no god named Jupiter. There is no god uh, named uh, you know, Vishnu or whatever, right? Fill in the blank. There, there, those are not, there, there's only one god. There is no god but God. Right? Those uh, said principalities that might act upon those idols, right? Because that is certain, that something we can discuss. Uh, that is, that is, that is much more feasible to consider. But those principalities and evil spirits and things like that are not gods. They are creatures and they must submit to the lordship of Christ ultimately. So we don't need to worry about them overtaking God or, or some other thing, right? We don't have to worry about that. Paul confirms this with a beautiful Trinitarian recitation that there is only one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. That was that uh, just wonderful uh, thing I mentioned earlier that these, that these Corinthians, this permissive party actually seems to be holding to. They would agree with this. Uh, it's, a, it's a wonderful, wonderful um, uh, little passage. And this is not just a theological lesson that Paul's trying to get at here. Uh, pastorally, Paul uh, points to this, this truth uh, as the humble grounds of which we should ground our, our knowledge, our trust in. If it's true that we serve one God, the Father, from whom is everything, and for whom right, we, have, we exist, that should not be puffing us up in pride, but rather making us lowly and 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 and, and love this God that, that made us and sustains us. Any person who recites this confession and believes it should be drawn uh, into admiration and love, not pride and arrogance. That is not the end for what that should be producing. 
For it's true, uh, it, it is by God's hand that we exist. As Paul says in Acts chapter 17 uh, uh, to um, Greek philosophers, so dudes smarter than probably most of us here, uh, you know, who, by the way, would also hold to their knowledge as their, as their, you know, their rock. He says in Acts 17, in him, God, we live and move and have our being. And Paul is bringing these things, all these things to mind, both here in 1 Corinthians 8 and, and elsewhere, because we're tr- he's trying to ground us and, and subtly uh, chink at that, 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 that puffing up that's happening. He wants us to be drawn into admiration, because if, if this is true, again, we should love him. Not think arrogantly and, and, and think much of ourselves. Uh, recently, this is not my notes, but I, I just thought of this. Um, Recently, my students and I walked through Gulliver's Travels, and in Gulliver's Travels, there is a, uh, one of the parts in the book is uh, Gulliver, the main character, goes to this land called Lilliput, and Lilliput is filled with these little tiny people uh, who are just horrible. Like, they're very petty, uh, they're very annoying, and they, and they talk, like, very, you know, uh, grandiose-like. Uh, there's a passage where this one dude has, like, I kid you not, like, 20 titles, um, but that's sort of that's sort of what it looks like when we are being puffed up in our knowledge. We're these little tiny people, right, before a all you know mighty God, and we're saying we're this and that, and we have we know all things, right? We all possess knowledge, all that kind of thing. So that's essentially an illustration. We're these little tiny people um, before an Almighty God. And so again, Paul is bringing all of this these specific theological things to mind, so that we would be brought to love Him and be known by him, as he said in verse 3. The right knowledge is founded upon the right knowledge of God. And it is not just an intellectual ascent that, uh, towards like some transcendental truth, right? some like out there in the space or whatever, but, uh, but a true love of him as our father and savior and mediator and friend and king. That's what we're, we're talking about here. That's true knowledge of God. That's true love of God. If everyone holds fast to this confession, then they, old, they ought to hold fast to love. And that they should build up the body of Christ into maturity before the eyes of the watching world. That's Paul's point. And therefore, we might conclude that it seems as if Paul is actually kind of commending the permissive party in, in, in the church of Corinth for their knowledge. Right? He's like, oh, you know this. That's great. So good. Everyone be like them. After all, they're holding to some pretty true things, right? You can, you can pluck that out and put it on a, a poster board somewhere and you would probably look very holy and very right. But let's take a trip real quick and go down a, a thought process here. They have the right truth. So, they're right. They know who God is. So therefore, it is good that they have no thought towards those who are weaker in the faith. Those who are weaker must simply get with the program and become knowledgeable like them because they're wrong. And they said that they all possess knowledge. Therefore, there ought to be no problems in the church as well if they all do possess knowledge. They know that the idols are nothing, so they can all go feast in the temples without a spot or wrinkle on their consciences. If someone who is younger than they see them doing so, then that younger person, again, just needs to uh, grow in their understanding of who God is. Right? Read their Bible more. They know that Scripture does not explicitly forbid, some other examples, the consumption of alcohol. And indeed it says wine is made to gladden men's heart. And so anyone who lifts a finger to stop them from drinking alcohol need to submit to the Scriptures. 
They know that God is above disease and that the pagan government, uh, speaking of Rome, of course, does not have the fear of God before their eyes. Therefore, if the government tries to mandate them to do something, I don't know, wear masks, they must not submit. Those who do submit are just government shills and sellouts who fear man and not God. They're wrong. They know that there is nothing wrong with dressing up in a costume for fun. And that October 31st is really just another day in the year. So, you know, they can do, it's fine to go dress up and have some fun in their costumes playing characters for the evening. Anyone who says otherwise are just fundamentalist legalists who just need to take a chill pill. They're wrong and we're right. They know that they are right and the others are wrong. And they just need to watch this documentary or read this article or listen to this podcast or read this passage of Scripture or whatever they point to. And they essentially hold fast to the fact that we have the way, not them. We possess knowledge. We are the ones who are faithful to God in the Scriptures. We are the ones who know. They are the ones who are wrong. Beloved, I draw us down that path because I want, to, I want you to hear what it sounds like when you take that perspective. And I want us to consider our own hearts. When we tell ourselves we are speaking the truth in love, are we actually doing that? Or are we just wanting to be right? right to be orthodox. To be good biblical Christians. Paul is pointing and is going to show us soon that it's not enough to just be right. That's not going to commend us to God. Our hearts are too prone to wield that knowledge as if it was an executioner's axe, right? We're quick to pick up the stones and hurl things the second that we think we have something over the other person. And so we must temper, we must season this knowledge in humble love. as verse 6 should bring us to do. Love for God and love for His bride. Not an us versus them. Because uh, might I remind you that our enemies are not flesh and blood, but those principalities and evil things that are in the spiritual realm. And because not everyone has this, has this right knowledge. Our last point, loving knowledge. Starting in verse 7. However, not all possess this knowledge. But some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol. And their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. It's indifferent. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge, eating in an idol's temple, Will he not be encouraged, if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. This is the grave warning that Paul is giving to this, this party in Corinth and also to us today. Instead of commending them for their knowledge and saying, oh, you got it right, so good, so true. The apostle instead is showcasing how utterly hateful 
it is to disregard those who are younger and weaker in the faith. To dismiss them and say, well, you just need to go read up a little bit more and just, you know, get, get with the program. As Calvin says, he refutes in a single word all that he, meaning Paul, has previously brought forward in their name, showing that it is not enough that they know that they know that what they do is right, if they have not at the same time a regard to the brethren. Paul is pointing out that the all in their claim that all possess knowledge is a lie. It's not true. There are those who are watching their elder brothers and sisters knowingly engage with, with, with what they believe and what they hold to be conviction to be sin. Namely, food offered to idols. And because they are young in the faith and they see their elders doing this, they're like, oh, well, I guess, I guess it's cool to hang out with the, the you know, Jupiterites or whatever they call themselves. For, the, to, for to those who do not know, that food being offered to idols really are, it really is food offered to like actual idols. Again, they just, it's, it's like if you have a brand new convert come to you who has no idea about anything in the faith, right? They've never read 1 Corinthians. They've never read this. Maybe they've read John 3.16, maybe. But most of the things they have knowledge of is very small and very minimal. And then you go and take them and, you know, into, you know, a pagan temple or uh, you know an abortion clinic or something, and say, "Yep, this is you know we know that God is one." They do not know that those things have no existence, and the consequence of this is that by their knowledge, by our knowledge, by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed. The brother for whom Christ died thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. And that is the ultimate end of that thought process with vain knowledge that is puffing up. It's not, it's not just that you're harming people. It's not just that you're causing them to be, even be destroyed. But you are actually rending apart the garment of Christ, rending apart His body, Jesus Himself. When we do not listen and consider what the weaker brethren say amongst us and instead arrogantly dismiss them and their concerns simply on the grounds of being right and their being wrong, we are not loving them. We are not caring for them. We are not bearing their burdens. We are not laying our lives down for them as we're called to do. We are actually crushing them. We are confusing them. We are destroying they for whom our Lord Jesus died for. This is why Paul, in his conclusion, it seems kind of strange out of nowhere, but he concludes, therefore, in verse 13, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Never. You cannot nuance that into oblivion. That is, it's, it's never. He's saying, I will never have a burger again in my life. God help him. Paul is not saying, though, to live our lives constantly anxious and afraid of offending people's consciences with what we eat or drink or wear or think. Spoiler alert. Uh, to do that would mean that you have to leave this world. And even then, I guarantee you, someone would probably be offended by your death. So it's not, it's not just about sort of like being like, oh man, I don't want to offend anybody. That's not what he's saying. Paul is saying that in matters that are adiaphora, um, things indifferent, 
like food or drink or days of the calendar. We, as he says in Romans uh, 14 and 15, right, have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. If a brother is struggling with alcohol addiction and you invite him over for dinner, perhaps think twice before cracking and opening a, a cold one. Right? Genuinely think about the person and be like, well, what, what, what serves him best? If a sister struggles with government mandates, do not be too quick to dismiss them. Hear her out. Actually care about what they have to say, even if you disagree with it. And you can disagree with it. It is, it is, it is okay to do so. I'm not advocating here for a tyranny of the weaker brother. There is a place to have a conversation with the weaker brother or sister about these indifferent things, these things that are adiaphora. But to have no conversation at all leaves your actions open to interpretation. And speaking as a teacher again, it is, <laughs> it's always appropriate to lovingly explain things unknown by patiently walking them through what is known. Right? Don't just do something and be like, well, they'll, they'll get it. They, they, they'll know. They won't know. <laughs> And this, this is this, this care, this love, uh, this is what finds its source within the love of God that he's been pulling uh, again and again throughout this passage. The truth that God descended to earth in the incarnation, suffered and died at the hands of sinful men in the crucifixion, defeated death in the grave and the resurrection, and ascended to heaven to reign eternally, promising that he shall come again for us like a bridegroom, that is the fuel for our love to bear the, the failings of the weak, to actually listen to them. That's the gospel. We're supposed to drink deeply from that. This is what will season our knowledge, giving flavor and color and texture that, that make it actually useful and, and good. It's actually edifying. It's actually loving. For if Christ died for you with mercy and love unswerving while we were undeserving, then he too died for our brother and sister that is bringing us grief and frustration, and they will bring you grief, and they will bring you frustration. But that does not give you an excuse, because you're right and they are wrong, to treat them as if they are trash. It is the love of God that is commending us to God. It is that which tastes good in his sight. And so, beloved, love your brother and love your sister. Love them as Jesus loves them. Love them in all of life and love them even all the way to death. Because although these things may seem like pointless things, what we do actually matters. And what we say to them actually matters. And so be exhorted. Love your brothers. Love your sisters. Have good, true, loving knowledge. Build them up. Do not tear them down. Amen. Bow your heads, me. Father, we ask that the truth of the gospel would reign in our hearts. Lord, that every avenue of life would be impacted by it. Even things that are 
seemingly uh, unimportant to us. Lord, if we think we are right, let us be hesitant to, to, to bash them over the head with that. Let us care deeply for our brothers and sisters. Let us care deeply for your bride, the church. Let us build them up. It is only through the Holy Spirit that they're able to do this. So we ask that he would do so for us. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen.